think we've seen the struggles of our students as well as professional staff just increase exponentially. You know, it's always been kind of in this upward trend, but I think the like density of it in the past couple of years has really been extreme. Um, and I think, of course, we think of the secondhand trauma experiences where going through these critical life moments with a lot of our students when it comes to mental health emergencies, when it comes to navigating the world as it is. Um, and I think a lot of that is also not being able to turn off when you live on. Um, you're always on. I even am technically on vacation. I went downstairs, ran into some of my students like, you came back early. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I am te still technically not here. Um, but especially, you know, those, those bigger moments when you're dealing with mental health. Um, when you're dealing with the death of a student, no matter how much counseling experience you get in graduate school, no one can really prepare you for that. Um, and unfortunately, no one outside the field can really understand that. But you also don't want to then tax your peers with the emotional labor of listening to you through those experiences. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Student Affairs Now. I'm your host, Glenn de Guzman. Now, Back in February of 2022, I hosted an episode called Rethinking the Residence Director Role, and it featured awesome folks like Crystal Lay, Steve Herndon, Asha Holmes, and it was really well received um, from, um, from many people as they spoke about their experiences as expert leaders in residence life or resident education. So this episode today brings full circle as we now hear the perspectives from those student affairs professionals who are currently serving as live-in professional staff. They are the resident directors. In today's episode, I'm joined by our panelists of RDs from various college and universities to share their experience. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and online learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. You can find details about this episode or browse our archives at studentaffairsnow.com. Now, this episode is sponsored by Simplicity. Uh, Simplicity is a true partner. They support all aspects of student life with technology platforms that empower institutions to make data-driven decisions. And this episode is also sponsored by Leadership. Um, go to leadership.org to learn how they can work with you to create a just, caring, and thriving world. I'll talk more about our sponsors um, in more detail at the end of this episode. So um, if you stay on long enough, you can hear more details. Um, again, my name is Glenn de Guzman. I'm the Associate Dean of Student and Director of Residential Life at the University of California, Berkeley. I use he, him pronouns, and I'm recording this episode from Livermore, California which is the ancestral home of the unceded territory of the Pelham tribe of the Ohlone peoples. So let's meet our panelists. I'm so excited to have William Sue from University of San Francisco, Chelsea Whitaker from New York University, and Robert Magdaleno from the University of California, Berkeley. Welcome to Student Affairs Now. Uh, the best way to start, obviously, is to get um, our audience to get to know you a little bit better. So if we can have you all introduce yourself. And uh, maybe we'll start with you, Will. All right, thank you, Glenn. Hi, everyone. My name is Will Shu. My English pronouns are he, him, his, and I'm currently a residence director at the University of San Francisco, uh, which is on the unceded ancestral lands of the Ramaytush Ohlone and Muwekma Ohlone peoples. Uh, I am currently uh, calling in and recording this episode um, on vacation, actually, in Guadalajara, Mexico, 
um, which is uh, the unceded ancestral lands of many indigenous nations, but most notably the Cocas, Tiquexas, Caxcanes, and Tepehuanes. Um, I've been in professionally in residential life and student affairs for roughly five years now, um, educated uh, undergrad and my master's program at large public research four-year institutions. Uh, and I've worked um, at worked full-time at small private religious, uh, specifically Catholic Jesuit, liberal arts four-year institutions. Um, and I've been living in as a student leader for four years, uh, but living in as a student affairs professional also for four years. So yeah, I'll pass back. Thanks, Will. And thanks for taking time out of your vacation. I really appreciate that. Let's go to Chelsea. Hello, my name is Chelsea Whitaker. I use she, hers pronouns. Um, I currently am a resident salt assistant director at New York University, which is on the lands of the Lenape people. Um, and I did my undergrad education at Washington University in St. Louis in theater and African, African American studies, um, where I also lived on for all four years, two of those as a resident advisor. Um, and then I also worked as a staff member at WashU and lived on in that capacity, working with faculty and academic initiatives in the residence halls before then doing my master's at the Ohio State University, um, of course, in higher education student affairs, where I also lived on. Um, and so I believe I've lived on for about six years as a full-time professional staff member. Um, and some of my work includes working with marginalized uh, students in college theater programs, um, as well as looking at abolitionist frameworks in community development. Thanks, Chelsea, for joining the panel. Let's go back from, uh, let's go from the East Coast back to the West Coast to Robert. Well, thank you for having me. My name is Robert Magdaleno. I use the he, him pronouns. I am currently a resident director at the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, before that, I was a resident director at the University of Puget Sound, and I got my master's degree at Lewis and Clark College. I'm an undergrad in political science at the University of Redlands. I like to joke that um, I was really into the liberal arts, small institutions. My biggest institution for Berkeley was my high school at 4,000. Everything else was below 2,000, and I absolutely loved my time in the liberal arts. Um, being a first-generation college student, to be 100% honest, my imposter syndrome is through the roof. No one wants to listen to me, so I'm absolutely honored, Glenn, to have me here. Thank you so much, and I'm excited to talk with the entire panel. I'm honored to have you and the rest of the panel here, and um, uh, this is going to be a wonderful uh, topic to discuss, and I'm, I'm just glad to get your perspectives on um, rethinking the resident director experience. So um, this question I'm gonna um, direct to all of you and Chelsea, I'm gonna actually have you kick off, but a popular topic over the past couple of years on this podcast has been around mental health of our students. But sometimes overlooked is the mental health of our professional live-in staff, like resident directors, community directors, obviously different institutions have different names and titles for that. But I'd like to hear from all of you, if you can speak to your experience or your experiences of your peers and colleagues regarding the stress and anxiety of being in this role. Uh, you can speak into like how the pandemic and just issues across our nation, whether it's civil unrest or hate crimes, violence, et cetera. How has that impacted all of you in trying to support our residents? Chelsea, why don't you kick us off? Yeah, I think we've seen the struggles of our students as well as professional staff just increase exponentially. You know, it's always been kind of in this upward trend, but I think the like, density of it in the past couple of years has really been extreme. Um, and I think, of course, we think of the secondhand trauma experiences when we're going through these critical life moments with a lot of our students when it comes to mental health emergencies, when it comes to 
navigating the world as it is. Um, and I think a lot of that is also not being able to turn off when you're live on. Um, you're always on, I even am technically on vacation. I went downstairs, ran into some of my students, like you came back early. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I am te still technically not here. Um, but especially, you know, those, those bigger moments when you're dealing with mental health, um, when you're dealing with the death of a student, no matter how much counseling experience you get in graduate school, no one can really prepare you for that. Um, and unfortunately, no one outside the field can really understand that. But you also don't want to then tax your peers with the emotional labor of listening to you through those experiences. Um, and I feel really fortunate that I have great insurance through my university in which I can go to therapy on a regular basis. But that certainly has not been the case throughout my career. Um, and so I think I had one professor that really said, like, we should have required therapy that's paid by our employers. And I think that would be a great step into addressing the mental health of our living staff. Oh, wow, great start. Uh, that's really interesting to hear about the, um, uh, uh, the um, therapy and, and provided by the university. Robert, you wanna add? Yeah, I think it's been a really hard time, especially for all of us. I was in graduate school during the 2016 election and then all that followed after that. And I think the incredibly hard thing about the resident director role is we often move to this role. So we're leaving our communities to join a new community of younger professionals as well. And I think for me, I'm luckily to be married and have an ability to step outside the role and talk to someone who's outside of student affairs. But often our entire community, student affairs professionals, usually resident directors who are dealing with the same issues we're dealing with our students trying to navigate and also trying to navigate a new field, higher education, and just the over political and social climate right now. I think it's really hard to try to understand outside the world when your entire world is higher education. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, what's really helped me is taking a step out of the role and trying to connect to the community. And thankfully in Berkeley, where I have a lot of great things to connect in the Bay Area outside of education. But I do think, especially as we look at resident directors and as we bring resident directors from different parts of the population, is how do we connect them to the community outside of higher education? Thanks, Robert. Will, what are your thoughts? Um, I think that you know, the one of the challenges with residential life and being live-in is that the university like depends on us um, to uh, be on site and to respond to the things that are especially after hours. Um, and what is also causing a lot of um, the burnout and the trauma that like we, um, that my colleagues have addressed here is that, um, is I think some, some of the ways that that response is managed um and for example like uh if you are an rd and you're not on duty um but you still come into contact with something um like what is your um like responsibility and onus to still like respond to the incident and see it all the way through but you weren't on duty to begin with um and so um, I think some of those 24-7 um, challenges, the nuances to that um, are what needs to be examined in how we um, sort of tackle some of the infrastructure of um, like the wellness of our professionals. Um, because I think as conversations are happening in supervision, supervisors are simply advocating for work-life boundaries, um, trying to coach their supervisees to like uh, establish work-life boundaries. Um, that can only go so far, um, but uh, it's not addressing the root of the the nature of our work um, as a uh, yeah at its origins. Um, 
I also think that during the pandemic, um, so there were a couple of things I noted that were particular to um, uh, my work context. Um, there was heightened anxiety around, uh, specifically for our international student affairs professionals who were, um, uh, I know that in the first episode, Dr. Aja Holmes referred to how um, when campuses closed down, uh, res like professionals in particular were getting laid off or furloughed left and right. And, um, but no one was stopping to consider the impact of a furlough or a layoff on an international student affairs professional whose work visa is dependent on being on them being full-time status. Um, so not just their work visa, but also their ability to stay in the States. Um, and for those of us who are US citizens, um, we still experience the lack of work um, and also lack of value attributed to our presence on campus. Uh, in response to that, like one of the things that many campuses did was create um, these uh, COVID care manager positions or roles that naturally the residence directors filled in for to check in on students who are placed into quarantine and isolation. Um, what that also does though, at least for us, our, um, our role was to uh, contact a student by phone or email um, or text every single day throughout their isolation, just to make sure that they're okay, monitor their symptoms, um, case manage them to get them connected to uh, appropriate resources. That made us um, experience, I guess, the, um, the uh, was duty responsibilities even more when we weren't on duty. Um, and I think for me in particular, uh, there was one time that I had a student who was not responsive whatsoever for like three days straight. Um, I had to go do a wellness check on the student. Um, and so I was uh, extremely heightened with, am I masking enough? Um, I have to like uh, go to their door, wait for them to open the door. Like, um, am I putting myself in danger? Um, and also, is there a possibility I'm gonna step in and see a dead body? Um, and so, um, yeah, I think that, and thankfully none of those things happen, but um, those are things that, uh, I don't think many administrators, the higher ups, um, have really thought through like um, the intricacies of this trauma that um, us as resident structures are being exposed to. Thanks, Will. Thanks for illuminating the you know the impacts or what goes through the mind of resident directors, particularly during the pandemic and sort of working on the isolation quarantine spaces. Those are those are definitely real um, feelings and thoughts that I know that have also been conveyed um, at my institution. Um, Will, I'm going to stay with you and um, and Chelsea. I'd also like you to, to add on to this question. Uh, around uh, the role of police. Um, a major topic has been about what role does police play in the residence hall? Obviously with um, a lot of uh, issues and topics that has arisen nationally and at, on college campuses regarding the presence of police. It depends on university system, it depends on structure, it depends on the police, but they, police has historically played a significant role in safety and security response. Um, I'd like to know what has been your experience or experiences of your colleagues with working with police? So I think my arrival at uh, University of San Francisco, which was January 2020, right before the um, pandemic hit and all of our campuses shut down, um, was at this very unique time for our campus um, where it was about 
a few years after um, some really strong student activism, particularly uh, from our Black identified students uh, on um, just the, uh, I guess, how problematic it was uh, that our police officers were doing rounds throughout all of our residence halls. Um, and as a result, uh, the time that I got there, there was already conversations in place about like, well, um, so what the university was distinguishing, what is uh, necessary police presence and what is unnecessary police presence and rounds in the residence halls were deemed unnecessary. Um, and so while, uh, so currently, uh, we no longer have police officers doing rounds through our residence halls, except to say hi to the community assistants working the front desk of each halls. Um, and uh, I think we are still envisioning or like reimagining uh, what does this continue to develop and look like. We are fortunate at USF to have a Progressive Policing Community Advisory Board or PPCAB um, for any listeners who want to Google search um, for our website. Um, and that we have a grant funded initiative through, um, I, I know it's uh, I know it's a Jesuit higher ed organization. Um, I don't remember the exact name, but uh, our initiative it's the Six Plus U grant um, that funds our reimagining re public safety at the University of San Francisco initiative. Um, these uh, initiatives and also the advisory board are comprised of not just uh, public safety leadership, but also um, faculty, staff, and students at the institution, and um, and are constantly uh, sifting through community feedback and then also trying to think proactively on, um, on what is the purpose, um, if there is a purpose um, to public safety uh, at our institutions. I will say though that even though we have now um, been very stringent on the, um, I guess like what level of incidents do uh, police respond to within our residence halls, what that has also resulted in uh, inadvertently is that the act of policing has ended up falling on the um, on the operations and um, protocols of the residence life staff. Um, and that has manifested um, simply in the things that our functional area are so used to RAs doing uh, rounds when they're on duty um, or even um, or even uh, students and student leaders, um, I would I would venture to say weaponizing the wellness care system, uh, wellness check system to um, have staff uh, essentially go knock on a door, but behind closed door end up finding a policy violation and therefore using staff as a way to um, police their peers. Um, and so, um, and these are things that we are still um, continuing to examine and how, um, in how do we shift the culture of residential life and also the educational values that we try to promote through our residential curriculum away from policing and towards um, accountability. And so um, naturally things are still, things can still continue to frustrate us in our relationship with public safety, but um, we are at least appreciative that we have um, these systems in place uh, at the institution for, um, feedback to be heard and responded to in a timely manner. Thanks, Will. 
Chelsea, what's been your experience like working with police? Yes, so I believe I mentioned this in my introduction. I am wholeheartedly an abolitionist. I don't think police have any role in our society and don't need to be um, as an institution. I do really like what Will said, reimagining public safety and, and what's its purpose, because of course safety is important in any community and you want people to feel safe. Um, so I think in my experiences, I'm trying to figure out a way, how do we make police obsolete um, in our community building that we do? That's gonna take a long time. Like, I do not know if I'm gonna see that in my lifetime because uh, it requires a lot of people. It requires that, you know, like Will said, you then have all these responsibilities that we've put on police and how do you redistribute that to the community and build up those skills when especially most of our students, they have no experience in building those skills and that's impossible to do in four years. Um, and so I think in particular, the institution that I'm at now, NYU, we don't have an on-campus police department. And so we have to work with the NYPD, which if you've read anything in the news, that's a very difficult, intense relationship across the city and especially with um, the mayor that we currently have. Um, and so we've even seen maybe even a year ago, you know, if we had a mental health emergencies, we'd have EMTs come and now it's EMTs and nine police officers. Um, and we really have no jurisdiction. We really have no way of giving feedback for that. Um, and so it's really assessing our own policies of, okay, how are we not traumatizing students when it's not in our control? What can we do? What in looking really more at those proactive ways um, that we're making students feel safe and how we're addressing crises while also managing the roles and responsibilities of all the live on staff, our student staff and our professional staff as well. So it's very difficult work, um, I would say, but I think uh, kind of each little step, you know, is a move not just towards reform, but towards not even needing police within residence life and with, on our campuses as well. Well, thanks for sharing that. I did not know that NYPD was your direct um, police. I know at UC Berkeley, we have a, um, a University of California Police Department in addition to the Berkeley Police Department, which is a whole different type of, <laughs> as Robert knows, a whole different type of uh, a relationship that we have to manage as well. Thanks for sharing, um, both of you, on that. Um, well, I want to go back to you because uh, this sort of is a completely different line questioning, but it's one that's often, uh, it's a popular question that we, we like to ask because obviously the resident director experience over the last you know, decade has been evolving. And, um, and I always wonder, having not been connected you know, from a, a, to my graduate program in a long time, um, if you could go back to your grad program or back to any, or tell any graduate program with what you know now, are there trainings or classes that you would tell them to focus on to just help prepare the next generation of resident directors? I guess in other words, what is changing with our residential populations that grad programs should really start looking at in their curriculum or assistant opportunities to support the resident directors? I think that uh, in terms of what's changing with our residential population, um, it, I think uh, the definition of meeting students where they're at um, continues to evolve. And um, we're gonna see that evolve generationally. Um, that's just, um, I feel like the way our society works. Uh, but in term, and based off of that, 
going to uh, different types of like classes or trainings, uh, I would say the first things that stuck out in my mind when I was processing this question were my own experiences of having law and higher education be a core um, to my um, to my master's program curriculum. Uh, so it wasn't an elective, I had to take it. Um, in addition, counseling programs uh, or counseling coursework uh, is, I think, um, beneficial. And if there is no counseling coursework available at your program, then I think it is really prudent for our uh, rising professionals to get some experience with advising techniques, because those are all um, sort of, uh, I don't want to say interchangeable, but they are all related. Um, and I think that those are all the techniques that I feel like I've had to draw upon the most uh, when responding to um, different student complaints or concerns that have been brought to my attention. I also think that up and coming generations of residents, um, the students living on our campuses are becoming more and more familiar with um, mental health services. And so as a result, um, for us to um, have, uh, I guess, some competency of that, then that's also why I bring up uh, counseling and advising techniques. And, uh, and to better understand populations, or at least to have the toolbox of skills to, um, to dissect how we meet students, how we meet audiences where they are. Uh, if programs offer some sort of marketing elective, then I think that I would recommend that as well. Um, so, uh, however, I, I wanna hone in on um, some sort of training or uh, skill building around responding to crisis, because um, I don't know about, other institutions across the country, but I know many institutions in California are doing away with their um, residential life graduate assistants being in an on-call rotation, um, partially because of um, HR policies and FLSA uh, not really allowing that, nor should we allow that because there is no um, equitable way to compensate for that, especially if our um, graduate assistants are hourly or stipend. Um, and but I've heard uh, a lot of debate in the field about well, if these graduate, um, if this graduate assistantship doesn't provide crisis experience, how are how is this person going to be a strong candidate for res life positions after? Um, and I think that our field has been very locked into this definition of crisis um, experience is valuable when it's after hours when that's not the case, um, like crisis experiences have, um, is transferable anytime you um, experience something out of the blue. And so, um, but I think how we train our uh, rising professionals to make sound decisions, to think critically, and also to take care of themselves after, that is all packaged in a responding to crisis uh, session or training or class that I'm imagining. Great, thanks Will. Chelsea, you wanna add on? Yes, I will echo everything Will just laid out in a very like logical, explicit way. Um, Cause I think when I think back to my graduate training, like of course the content was helpful, but I think the faculty did a really great job of teaching us how to think essentially. 
Um, so, you know, yes, we have these historical theories that, you know, you're like, how do I actually apply this when I'm being a practitioner? And so when it comes to changing populations, you know, I was learning about the value of social media. We were learning about different frameworks and how to even approach looking at a theory from different ways. And so I feel like that emphasis on how do we re-envision these theories um, when we're encountering students that did not exist, you know, 50 years ago, um, or we're not even looked at, we're not even in our institutions at all. Um, and how do we look at those theories and really translate that to something tangible? Um, I think not ignoring what our incoming students are doing with social media and things like that, but really being able to, uh, to embrace it. Again, that kind of meeting them where they're at and not where we think they should be. Thanks, Chelsea. Uh, Robert, I wanna um, ask this question to you. The type of work RDs and RAs are facing around uh, with residents with mental health student concern issues, um, has some colleges and universities thinking about licensed social workers working in the res halls? Um, I asked this question in a previous podcast and I want your take on this. Would you like more professionally trained people to support RDs in this capacity, meaning licensed social workers, or should RDs be trained in their grad program to better support residents? I think simply yes, and I think will really hit on the head is that for graduate and talking about programming, we need to learn to support. How do we do mental health? How do we support crisis? But how do we advise and counsel? And I think that's something we do need to focus on as we move to new RDs. I think I'm very hesitant to say yes to a social worker because I have seen in previous past that that's just a band-aid to the solution. The RDs are still going to be burnt out. They're still going to be handling mental health crisis. And I don't want to be hearing, well, we hired a social worker. So, and just like kind of covering it up and brushing the issue under the rug of the burnout and the amount of work we're doing. I think in particular for me, what I would really like to see, and Berkeley had this for a little bit, I'm hoping we bring it back eventually, is a mental health professional for our RAs. I've had a lot of RAs tell me that they scheduled their therapy the other week. So my one-on-one could be the next therapy session. I think I'm more and more focusing my one-on-ones as a therapy session, especially as we talked previously with the amount that's going on outside of higher education, then trying to navigate this field and navigate everything else. One-on-ones have really truly become therapy sessions for my residents. And I think as I've grown in the profession, learned how to build my boundaries, I've been able to navigate more, but I remember as a first year professional, every one-on-one was draining. It was exhausting. I didn't have the tools. I didn't have the skill set to build those boundaries and also how to like debrief and decompress from that. So I think for me, I'm loving that the people above me are having conversations about social workers, but I really want to focus on how do we support the RAs? Because right now that's the RDs and the RDs are supporting the rest of the student population as well. Thanks Robert for sharing that. Uh, this question came in um, and it was brought up by some folks um, um, outside of this. This uh, I, I didn't come up with this question, but I love this question, so I want to share it. And I'm going to direct this to uh, Chelsea. Um, there's been talk about this idea of the great resignation that a lot of um, student affairs professionals and a lot of live-in professionals are leaving in greater numbers out of the student affairs profession. What are you seeing or hearing from your fellow peers? Are they leaving? Is it about compensation? Is it about devolving work? Or is it about the impacts of the pandemic? Uh, there's, there seems to be a lot of different takes on this. I want your take on it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the great resignation is very much a pattern. 
um, and an issue we should be paying attention to. I think what frustrates me the most, I think about this concept is that it's exclusive to higher education. Um, if you look all across the country, um, people are resigning because they're realizing they're not being compensated enough, um, especially in responses to how our economy is going, even just the cost of living um, as well. And so you're also seeing those impacts in higher education. Um, and I think especially having had experience, I did work as a corporate project manager for a year. Now I'm, I kind of made the opposite. I moved into higher ed, whereas a lot of people are now moving into corporate life. Um, and it's, it's kind of a catch 22 because I was working the same amount of hours in corporate and getting paid more, but I didn't enjoy the work. Um, whereas now I completely understand why several of my peers, several folks are leaving higher education as a field. I know for me, I'm passionate about working with college students. And so I'm in the perfect place for that. Um, and so I think for a lot of people, it's just, you know, that is not becoming worth it for what they want. And I think especially looking with COVID, not only like the financial effects that happens, but I think a lot of people did a lot of self-reflection. And I think our mortality was much more in our faces um, and realizing what do you want? And so I think a lot of it is a personal decision. Um, and I think it's not just an issue with higher education, it's an issue with how we treat workers in this, in this country as a whole um, and across the world. And so I feel like if we plugged in uh, to other industries, to what else is happening, I think it wouldn't be such a shock. Um, and we could really start to address some of those, those root problems. And I think, you know, very pro-union. Um, and so making sure that we're addressing those issues too, because I think a lot, especially for living staff, a lot of us are not unionized, but where there are unions on our campuses and really how can we all build power to get everyone paid fairly. Robert, what's your take on this? I think, so referring back to the previous podcast, unfortunately, I don't remember who said this, so I'm sorry, but they had mentioned that the resignation was that campuses were able to evolve and change quickly when we were always told they can never evolve and change. And that was to accommodate everything happening. And as we return back to pandemic recovery, returning back to whatever normal is, we're being told things can't change anymore. And it's incredibly frustrating. It's been very in our face that things can't change. And though I do agree with that, I think that's the second wave of the great resignation. We have to talk about the first wave. And I think that first wave is us not being valued. I think it's easy to say that the RD position is a general position. But to be honest, I think that's a scapegoat sometimes to say, I don't know what an RD does. I think often when I was hearing um, we talk about the George Floyd protest, we saw great emails from institutions talking about how we support Black students, how we support our students. And I always said at the bottom, especially with large, the small institutions I worked at, please contact your mental health professional or your resident director to talk about these issues. But there was no emails going to the resident directors. There's no emails going to the professionals like, how do we support you? And I think it was an issue of a lot of younger professionals where the institution said they had the values of taking care of folks, but they focus on the students and they don't focus on the people doing the work. And I think part of the reason I am part of the great resignation, I was in that first wave, I felt my institution had great values, but some of the key actors in it weren't living up to those values. And I felt often used, I became a mental health professional, I became a public health professional, I became a COVID respondent all within the crisis of a month or two without hearing, Robert, what's going on? How can we support you? Who can we hire? What can we do? And I think that great resignation, I'm a little, get a little ick maybe about the term, is that it puts the onus on the person to leave 
when I do think it's the onus on the institution to say, why are people leaving? And I think partially it's because you tell the RD they're generalists, but please sit down and talk to me what I actually do, because I honestly feel like you don't know the work I'm doing and you're just gonna keep adding because I wear so many hats. Thanks for sharing that, Robin. Actually builds, I mean, leads to this next question. You know, it, we do talk a lot about, and, and when I say we, I'm talking about leadership, campus leaders like myself, we talk a lot about resilience in student affairs. And, uh, but I also wonder how the next generation of resident directors will come to terms with our request to say, you need to be more resilient. Um, given that many living staff have experienced so much over the past two years, whereas I do feel that resiliency is needed, I also believe that campus and department leaders like myself need to also play a part in creating a work environment to support the resident directors and the living staff. Given the current old and anticipated professional challenges that you're all facing. So my question for all of you is what infrastructural or policy changes or strategies are you seeing now or would like to see campus leaders implement in the future? Um, who would like to go first? I can take it. I think I've touched on it a little bit in my first answer I was mentioning that I think connecting with the community, connecting with folks outside of higher education has also been helpful. But my previous institution, I didn't have a duty phone. I didn't have a work phone. If I was on duty, they were calling my personal cell phone. And that was hard at UC Berkeley. I'm thankful to say that I have a work phone. I have a duty phone and we have a separate duty phone from that too. And that's been a really nice work and balance. And I think as we're hearing people in your level, Glenn, talk about work-life balance, it's interesting to see the takes they do. I think there's some institutions who are like, here's what I did for work-life balance, but not understanding the population, the generation, while others are bringing us to the table and think we'll have some of those podcasts to talk about these issues. And I think for me, it's how do we understand work-life balance, but how do we make sure RDs and younger professionals are at that table too? Great. Chelsea, what are your thoughts on this? Yes, this is a, a tough question for sure. Um, but I think some of the things that come to mind is um, like a four day work week would be great. Um, I think now what's been really great at my current institution is that when we do work weekends or an extra night, like we do get those comp days, which is really great. And they're really strict about it. They're like, no, you must not be here. And I'm like, that is no problem. Great. Um, or even thinking about, I think, across any institution, like even apartment equity. Um, you know, you don't want to go home and feel like you're living in a residence hall. Like you wanna go home and feel like it's home. Um, and I've become fantastic with a roll of contact paper, um, but also at the end of the day, and I think that impacts who we're also seeing come in as hall directors. You know, it's easy for someone who is young and unattached to come into and accept kind of any apartment um, but we're really losing, you know, folks who want to build families and want to have lives and aren't just folks who aren't just focused on a nuclear family model either. Um, and so I think part of that resilience, like Robert said, is having that community around you um, as well. And so I think being able to build ways outside of work, um, that's not a work happy hour, that's not a pizza party, um, but feel really tangible would be really, really great ways, I think, to to help build the resilience and people's ability to stay too. Um, what are your thoughts on that? So uh, I think my take on um, the infrastructural um, or policy changes 
is uh, a little bit to what I heard Chelsea mention, uh, compensation equity. Um, we, uh, I think it was from, um, yeah, one of the panels I mentioned in the last uh, episode of this topic, um, no apartments are, uh, are created equally um, within our field. And so um, I think uh, it, it's infrastructural and it, it's gonna be, and it's a big challenge because it's infrastructural, but uh, simply the number of bedrooms um, offered to uh, standard standardized for an RD apartment, appliances, um, in-unit laundry, uh, parking. I think parking is a big one because um, our contracts all require us to live on campus um, in order to hold a job. If this, um, if transportation is not included, then um, and parking is not included, then we are essentially paying, um, I get paying some of the uh, salary that's been paid to us in order to, um, in order to fulfill the responsibility of living uh, on campus to hold the job, um, and that, yeah, I, that's absurd to me. Um, I also think that um, uh, some things about um, like protocol. Uh, have been shifted that I do appreciate at um, University of San Francisco. Uh, our campus used to be one where the RD on duty had to go um, had had to go to the hospital whenever a student was um, admitted to the emergency room and had to be there with the student um, until they were conscious. Um, and now, um, especially in COVID, where especially if hospital staff won't let us in anyways because we aren't um, blood relatives of the student and they can't tell us anything anyway so um, we've determined that there is no purpose for us going to the hospital and hopefully it stays that way um, even when we switch in, when we transition into an endemic instead of a pandemic um, but it would also be great that um, we are limiting the number of uh, phone calls that we get when we are on duty um, so uh, many campuses have their RDs on duty, sorry, RAs on duty call in um, to the duty phone whenever they're checking in for duty just to, and that is in, in essence, uh, one of our ways of holding uh, RAs accountable um, that they are performing their responsibilities. Um, but um, multiple duty calls um, that uh, are becoming extra sources of <laughs> traumatization um, simply through association with the duty ringtone. Um, and so now having our RAs um, on duty text in instead of call in um, or like we using text, I think that has been a way that has not only been a little kinder to um, us with um, RDs on duty who are in terms of like our uh, association with um trauma that we're going to get when we're on duty anyways but also kinder to our students because we're meeting them where they're at um i i've heard a lot from my colleagues and i i concur a lot about the need that the institutions need to um express more value um in the rd uh staff and live on staff in general and i think um that expressing value has um, subconsciously been conflated with compensation and it is compensation and it is also attention, communication, and energy. Um, as Robert had shared, um, not being 
communicated with or consulted with in um, during a tragedy when the institutions focus on the students. Of course, it's going to be focused on the students because the students are uh, where the money comes from um, at the institution. But um, but like uh, if there's no even attention or preparation given to the staff, um, it it really does feel like we are being scapegoated for the student's sake in order for the student to still um, be okay and to matriculate um, at the institution. And I had one more thing also yep. that Will kind of sparked with me. Yeah. I think we talk a lot about compensation too, but one thing that I think that Berkeley I am grateful for is our contract's been extended. I think reshifting the narrative that the RD role is two years and then you go to a different institution I think seeing an institution invest in their RDs and state, like if you want a career position here, how do we connect you? How do we work with you here? I think some institutions are very much like, you're here for two years, I'll help you find a new job after. And that never feels great either. Cause if I'm gonna be putting into the work community, I would love to see the directors try to add, how do we make the RD stay here? If the RD wants to stay here. And I think that's a final shift I would love to see. And when we talk about valuing the RD is valuing their work and wanting to keep them at that institution, not telling them, well, your contract's up, good luck finding your next job. Thanks for adding that. It was very thoughtful and I appreciate the um, authenticity and the realness of the responses. And I know that those are difficult. Um, this is a, that's a difficult question and I really appreciate the, the responses for sure. We are also at the end of our podcast. We always end with our wrap up question. Obviously the, the podcast is Student Affairs Now. And if you could just sort of summarize your thoughts on what are you thinking about, um, what emerged for you during this conversation or what are you excited about or what's uh, what's still troubling you if you can kind of just quickly summarize um i'm gonna have will you go first and then chelsea and then robert you can close us up um i think one of the things that uh is definitely troubling me is um is still uh Chelsea uh, enlightening us of how uh, especially many urban institutions don't have their own public safety department or campus police department and rely on um, the greater police force of that uh, municipality. And, um, and I think that that, uh, that troubles me because we, we working in higher ed and student affairs already know how much of a silo, how isolated our field is compared to even um, the broader field of education and um, other disciplines out there. And so if we're, if we already aren't experiencing a whole lot of understanding of what happens in our field um, from uh, other disciplines, um, I, that just, um, that just sounds like um, a losing battle uh, in the work that we are trying to do in order to ultimately support our students and their development. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Um, I hate to end on that, but I, I'm still just deeply troubled by that. And I don't necessarily have thoughts on like um, how to imagine a better solution. But um, yeah, that's yeah. my answer to how, what's troubling me. <laughs> And that's a great response, Will, and then it's real. And then I think that's, and as this is what this conversation does. It just emerges so many different feelings and thoughts. Kelsey, your final thoughts. Yeah, I think kind of going off of the, the silos that just Will mentioned, I think 
this conversation, even for me, you know, aspiring sounds cheesy, but I think you know, it's like, I only have one brain. I can only think about so much at one time. So I think to bring so many other perspectives together is great. And I think higher ed as a whole is so focused on, you know, institutions want to be the first, they want to be the best. Um, and we don't prioritize sharing information. We don't prioritize sharing strategies that have worked, um, especially at higher ed institutions are virtually everywhere. Um, but of course, you know, in different geographical areas and, you know, different types and structures. Um, so I think if we focused a lot more on sharing what we're doing and making sure we're doing at the end of the day, what's best for our students um, across institutions, um, I think that would be a really great step in, in improving higher education. And Robert. I think mine's incredibly similar to Chelsea. But, um... I'm again, great, incredibly grateful to be on this. I've learned so much just from Will and Chelsea in this 50 minute conversation. And I think we talk a lot about being siloed in the RD role. There's RD roles at, at every institution. We should be connecting with other folks and having those conversations. What can we learn and what can we take from other institutions? And one thing the pandemic did teach us is the world isn't that big. It's a quick Zoom call to talk to someone from Mexico and New York. And I would love to continue having that conversation with other folks and other RDs because again, Will, Chelsea, thank you so much. I've learned so much from you all in just this brief conversation. I normally don't answer this question, but I gotta really, gotta, I gotta chime in here. I'm a super appreciative of just the different perspectives and um, thoughts that you all shared as well. Um, I know that the last couple of years as a director of residential life, I've heard so many different thoughts and ideas, emerging feelings um, and you know, it's a lot. And trying to sort and organize and prioritize where to even begin has been a, a challenge. And um, but just even continuing the conversation like this, hearing your thoughts and ideas, I'm really appreciative of you just joining me, me on this podcast today. So thank you to everyone here. Um, Will and Sue, Chelsea Whitaker, Robert Magdaleno, thank you. I'm grateful for your time and contribution to this podcast. Um, Nat Ambrosi, I'm thank you again for behind the scenes. I think you know Nat. A long time ago, did some time at UC Berkeley, and I think you're going to really appreciate listening to this as you prepare and describe it for um, for it being aired. Again, I want to thank our sponsor, Simplicity and Leadership. So, Simplicity is a global leader in student-service technology platforms with state-of-the-art technology that empowers institutions to make data-driven decisions specific to their goals. A true partner to the institution, Simplicity supports all aspects of student life, including but not limited to career services and development, student conduct and well-being student success and accessibility services. To learn more, visit simplicity.com. You can connect with them on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And Leadership, thank you. They partner with colleges and universities to transform, uh, to create transformational leadership experiences, both virtual and in-person for students and professionals with a focus on creating a more just, caring, and thriving world. Leadership offers engaging learning experiences on courageous dialogue, integrity, equity, resilience, and community building. To find out more, please visit them at www.leadership.org forward slash virtual programs or connect with them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Um, to the audience and listeners, thanks for joining us. This was a phenomenal podcast. I really appreciate all of you just being here and sharing. Um, for those who are listening in and you got to the very end of this podcast, um, if you're not already receiving our weekly newsletter, please join um, and uh, visit our website, studentaffairsnow.com. Scroll to the bottom and add your email to our MailChimp list. Um, if you are listening, wherever, watching on, on YouTube, give us a thumbs up. 
Um, I'm Glenda Guzman. Thanks for listening or watching. Wherever you are, go out and make it a good day. Take care, everybody.